Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode 19 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts today. In today's episode, we're going to go through five key considerations for electric vehicle planning. And with us today are two co-hosts, both with Modern Mobility Partners, Julia Billings and Malavika Morali. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So you may recall our season one episode, Eight Steps to Planning for Electric Vehicles, uh, where we first discussed how to incorporate EVs into transportation plans. And that would be long range transportation plans like for metropolitan planning organizations, or in some cases also for statewide transportation plans. And in that episode, we talked about some of the federal policies and priorities for electric vehicles, including the plan to install 550,000 electric vehicle charging stations across the country by the year 2030. We also discussed some of the common concerns with electric vehicles like range anxiety and social equity as it relates to access to charging infrastructure. So today we want to focus on the evolving conversation surrounding EVs because there's been a lot going on since that last episode back in season one. Uh, Especially we want to talk about the concerns that people may have about EVs and EV charging and what planners need to know when incorporating EVs into transportation plans. Uh, as we've gotten further along. And in particular, we want to talk about five key topics, safety, grid capacity, charging availability and range, social equity, and climate. Yeah, so all five of these topics are directly relevant to the general public as people consider whether or not they want to drive an electric vehicle themselves and what impacts EVs or electric vehicles will have on the transportation system, the energy system, accessibility, and climate. Uh, The one which is probably most popular is range anxiety. So range anxiety is where people are afraid they won't be able to find a charging station and they'll essentially be stranded in their car. And we're gonna talk more about the evolution in EV ranges and the progress on EV charging infrastructure But even with the charging available, I think people are also unsure about how long they will have to have to sit at a charging station, especially when they're on the long trip. So even though charging stations may be there, if they're for for us in Atlanta, a lot of us drive down to Florida for vacation. If we're on a long road trip like that and I have to stop and charge my car how long is that going to take? How long do I have to sit there? If I if I have a fueled vehicle, I can go to the gas station. I know it's going to take like five minutes and I'm back on the road. But is that the case with electric vehicles? So those are some of the concerns that people have. So let me put it out to this group. How do you all feel about purchasing an electric vehicle? Like, are you interested or do you have concerns about them? Well, I'll start out. My next car will definitely be an EV. 
And if you've seen my car, it's pretty old, so that might be pretty soon. <laughs> I'm not really worried about range. Uh, you know, I think 99% of my trips are, are really short on my day-to-day -day driving. You know, most EVs have a 200, at least a 200-mile range. And I think even with, even with the slow charger, I could get by with no issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually thinking about my next vehicle purchase, too, which is probably going to be a couple years Oh, I hope it's a couple years. We got to get another car paid off before we start thinking about buying one. Um, but you know, I'm I'm still on the fence. Like, I look at the electric vehicles, and the range anxiety doesn't, or the range doesn't give me anxiety for, like you said, Julia, my local trips. But it would probably be the car that we would prefer to take on longer trips. And I think that's kind of where the where the rub comes in with with my husband yeah. Kyle and I. He he's like he does not want to do an electric vehicle. Uh, he does he doesn't trust <laughs> it. He's he's not there yet. I'm trying to convince him. Um, yeah. He's not a believer yet. I've also tried to convince him to carpool, and like that that conversation has gone way south way quick. Um, but yeah, I mean. Is it because he just doesn't want to carpool with you or he just doesn't like carpooling in general? It's it's most definitely me and my schedule compared to his. Like he doesn't want to wait on me in the morning and he's definitely not going to wait on me in the afternoon. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I don't know. Um I I'm leaning towards it, but on the other side of it, like, and I think we're going to get into this a little bit in today's conversation, just seems like they're pretty expensive. Yeah, so, okay, so I have another interesting tidbit that just from recently. So for me, my next car, I'm pretty certain will be an electric vehicle, but I don't plan on getting one for another car for another few years. But recently, I was looking car looking for cars for my 17-year-old. I finally decided, okay, I'm tired of carting them all around town. So I'll go in halvesies and we'll split the cost of an old used car. And, of course, I originally started looking at old beaters and that wasn't working out. So then I started looking at, because Hester really wanted um, a very... A fuel efficient car ideally um, you know a hybrid or electric vehicle if possible obviously so I was looking at the I think it was the is it the Nissan Versas the Nissan uh, no the Leafs the Leafs I think so yeah you know I of course I was looking at ones you know 10 11 12 years old and what I quickly learned is back then and this applies for anyone looking at used EVs that, you know, isn't going to, that doesn't have a lot, you know, a lot of buying potential. Uh, the batteries back then at full capacity only lasted like 70 miles. And then after like eight, 10 years, the battery needs to be replaced or it's at least not getting, it's not at full capacity. So at best you're getting like 55 miles. So that's actually what kept us from getting one of those is because, you know, they weren't going to get very far in that. So it's just something to think about when we're thinking about equity and EVs and people saying, oh, well, you can just get a used one. Those are lower cost, but then they don't go as far either. So 
And then a lot of times people have to live further out, you know, because it's cheaper. Well, you know, real estate wise, but then if your car can't get you there, because, you know, so just something to think about. I thought that was interesting. I learned a lot about the whole battery stuff and replacing the battery isn't really an option, at least from on those older cars, because it's worth more than the car itself. So, yeah, it was interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's continue and let's talk a little bit about our role as transportation planners. And uh, really, you know, we just we need to be aware of these issues and the extent to which we can or cannot have an impact And one thing that's definitely applicable for planners is the federal funding availability for EVs and EV charging. And given the recent growth in electric vehicle adoption and the amount of funding, it's pretty apparent that EVs are going to be a part of the transportation conversation for the foreseeable future. I think I I heard something somewhere, and I'm, I'm going to totally misquote it and butcher it, but I, I heard that the adoption rate was over 5% which is a significant percentage when adopting new technology that that's that's kind of the threshold. Once you pass that, it is going to have an impact that's um, interesting. on the on the future. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I think it was five percent. I could be I could be way off <laughs> and audience, if you'd like to correct me, please message us. Well and that sound that makes sense too because Speaking of legislation, yesterday, USDOT and um, the Joint Office with Energy as well announced the new grant opportunity for EV charging infrastructure. And one of the things that they mentioned was that the in the United States, EV purchases have, I think they, was it doubled just in the past couple of years? So... It's gone up significantly in the United States as well. And a couple of years ago, it was like two, two percent or something like that. So if it's at around five, yeah, that makes that about, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So another responsibility for us planners is really to incorporate all five of these key considerations that we're going to talk about today, especially in your long range comprehensive plans. Whereas planners still have to think about other considerations for other project types like widenings and its right-of-way impacts on the community or improvements that may impact surrounding land uses um, or even those unintended consequences that come from certain projects. This is not any different, but the considerations that we have to think about are somewhat new to transportation planners and uh, Julia and Malavika are really going to get into the details. So we have a lot to cover today. We're very excited to have Julia and Malavika join us and walk us through these five key considerations for EV planning. So Julia, you ready to start us off? Yeah, let's do it. So the first consideration we want to talk about is safety. Transportation planners are always seeking to promote safety. And so this issue is really top of mind for us. EVs have been shown to be at least as safe as internal combustion engine or ICE vehicles for people inside the vehicles. And since EVs haven't been widely available for very long, most EVs are new and have the latest safety and technology that older vehicles lack. To Kelly's earlier point, I mean, there are some older models out there, but a lot, there's been so much growth lately that a lot of these vehicles Mm -hmm. are pretty new. That's all good news, again, for the people inside the vehicles. But one thing to remember about EVs is that they're a lot heavier than other vehicles. So when an EV does crash with another vehicle or a person outside of a vehicle, like a biker or a pedestrian, it can do a lot of damage. 
So, Julia, that's really interesting. I actually, maybe I just didn't think about it, but I really had no idea that they were significantly heavier than ICE vehicles. I, I just figured that the batteries were about equal in weight yeah. with traditional engines, but what you're saying is that that's really not the case. EVs are quite a bit heavier. Uh, it depends on the model, obviously, and, and there's a lot of variation. And aside from the battery, other parts can be lighter. But in general, EVs do tend to be substantially heavier than a similar sized ICE vehicle. For example, Ford's F-150 Lightning EV pickup is about two to 3,000 pounds oh, heavier geez. than a non-EV F-150. Wow, that's so, yeah. like, quite a bit heavier. That's pretty significant. That's like, yeah. Yeah, some other models I'd heard were about like 30% more heavier, 30% heavier than their counterpart for non-EV. So again, a lot of variation. Yeah, I had always just assumed that like the the weight of the battery out, you know, was a wash when you compared other things, right? And just overall as a total, I didn't realize it was that much different either. Yeah. Interesting. Heavy vehicles also affect roadway maintenance needs as you know, more weight causes more wear and tear. So that's another consideration as well. Yeah, that's definitely true and timely. While these vehicles are not as heavy as trucks, like tractor trailers, there is current legislation going through Georgia's capital to increase the truck weight restrictions. So increasing the amount of truck weight that's permitted, which the DOT here has testified on the impacts um, it would have on Georgia's bridges and roads, which would be significant going from 80,000 pounds to say 90,000 pounds. And so there's been a lot of iterations of that bill going through the Capitol now, and we'll see what happens with it. But that's definitely a concern. And so while we may not necessarily be talking about trucks in this episode, you know, EV trucks are under development. And this is so it's a safety issue and a weight issue could be very impactful in the trucking industry. So that's a good point. Yeah, and I want to point out one more safety matter, which is a concern about fires. It's something I've heard people voice concerns about lately. Um, You might have heard of Chevy's recent recall on the Bolt model due to fire risk associated with the battery. But fires are actually more common among non-EVs when you look at a per mile basis. So I think anytime there's a new technology, people will be understandably cautious about it. But as EVs become more common, I think these fears will start to subside. Yeah. So do do any of y'all follow ATL Scoop on Instagram? No, I'm barely even, have y'all I'm like, it? I have a profile on Instagram, but that's about it. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to post. I, I don't, don't know, know how, how to post on Instagram, <laughs> but I, I know how to follow. So ATL Scoop is like every, like they just take everybody's videos around Metro Atlanta about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I recently started following them, and I can tell you, I see at least two to three car fires on there every day. Wow. Every day. And, like, I actually looked at it this morning, and I think I saw, like, four or five car fires from overnight last night into this morning. Like, I had no idea that there were that many car fires every day. Um, And I really thought that they were pretty rare, but but apparently not. Yeah, and because they're common, you don't necessarily hear about them on the news, but the EV car fires, you do, because they're new and they attract more attention, right? But as Julia said, as EVs become more common, people won't fear it as much. Yeah, that's a good point. So when we think about do EVs improve safety, I think it's not quite that simple. I mean, for EV drivers and passengers, 
yes, EVs do appear to have safety benefits, but we need to remember that heavier vehicles can do more damage and have other implications. So that's all the more reason for planners to make sure that our transportation systems provide safe facilities for all users, especially those vulnerable road users like bicyclists and pedestrians. Yeah. And one thought I just thought of also is that for if you're outside the EV and you're a pedestrian, for instance, you know, the EVs can be very quiet. And so you don't always hear them sneaking up on you. And I know there have been times where I've been like about to cross the street and I'm very surprised real quickly because all of a sudden I see a car that I didn't even realize was right behind me or something. So, so Julia, are you saying overall for this one, you know, the major takeaway here for transportation planners is to ensure that the infrastructure like sidewalks, crosswalks, intersections, striping, that, you know, it's always been, but an even more increasingly important because as EVs become more prevalent, they can have a larger safety risk for vulnerable users like pedestrians and bicyclists. I don't know if they pose a larger safety risk overall, because like most newer model vehicles, they do tend to have a lot of great safety features, yeah. like sensors and that kind of thing. Yeah. But I think those infrastructure improvements are worthwhile anyway. Yeah, it, it's similar. It's a similar thought. Um process like where we always talk about and tell our clients as far as when you're preparing for driverless vehicles for driverless vehicles it's really important that the roads are in good condition and you have clear pavement markings well guess what you really want to do that anyways and that benefits everybody so it's a similar thought process right so yeah and you know good news um we do have an upcoming episode on safety and particularly the safe streets for all program Um, So we'll be talking more about that later, but let's move on to the second consideration. But just before Mm -hmm. we do that, um, I wanted to make mention, we we told you in our first episode of this season where we described the new planning emphasis areas that we're going to try to tie each of these episodes back to that conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, this conversation and topic is directly related to planning emphasis area number three, complete streets. That's right. So be sure to refer back to complete streets and there are some strategies on how you can improve the safety of your infrastructure to prepare for all vehicle types. Yes. Okay, moving on. Malavika. All right, so I'll talk a little bit about consideration number two, which is uh, the electric grid capacity. So another topic that comes up a lot when we talk about EVs is electrical grid capacity. To receive the federal NEVI funding, each state was required to develop an electric vehicle infrastructure deployment plan. According to Georgia's plan, the electricity demand for the EV charging network is less than 0.5% of the generating capacity in the state, which exceeds 37 gigawatts. So what does this exactly mean for the electricity grid's capacity to handle that level of increase? Well, there's a lot of mixed opinions on this. So according to their NEVI plans, states such as California, Texas, and Florida believe that they'll be able to handle it and that by the time the target numbers of EVs hit the road, uh, the impact on the grid will be reduced even further. On the other hand, though, um, states like Vermont, New Mexico, and Alabama believe that they can handle what the current um, presence of EVs on the road require and the short trip demand. But long term, they question the reliability of constant power from the grid and the ability for operators to handle the required capacity. So another concern of these states, in addition to the capacity, is funding availability. 
uh, while the federal funding from the BIL or IAJA will contribute to 80% of the NEVI plan's project costs, that doesn't speci specifically address the cost of maintaining the infrastructure and the additional uh, grid usage. So, Malavika, you know, based on what you just described, what would you say are some of the solutions? So although the federal NEVI program does not directly support um, states in their electricity grid capacity expansion and maintenance, the federal government is providing billions in funding for new and upgraded um, high-capacity electric transmission lines through the Building a Better Grid initiative enabled by the IAJA. Um, so this will help provide for growing electricity needs. There's also some solutions that are being explored through public-private partnerships uh, to ensure that the technologies are up to date and that the grid infrastructure is more integrated with EV charging requirements. Some of these solutions might focus on battery thermal management systems to ensure that thermal conditions are managed and regulated to handle multiple fast charging instances. So the government, there's certain government agencies that are working with car manufacturers to develop and adopt bi-directional chargers for vehicle to grid. So that's V2G. Uh, vehicle to house V2H and vehicle to load V2L capabilities. So essentially, bidirectional chargers allow us to charge and discharge energy from EV batteries. So these can be used to kind of feed back into the electricity grid, power a home, be a backup power source, or even charge other EVs. So uh -huh. the V2L option um, does not need a bidirectional charger, but the other two do. So these applications can be used to store off-peak electricity or solar power to reduce household, ele household electricity costs and provide relief to the grid. Um, essentially, the technology, what it's doing is converting the alternating, cur alternating current uh, power to direct current during charging and reverses during discharge. However, the main limitation is that this can only work on vehicles that are compatible with two-way power flow and it's not as popular or widely used as of yet. So if in an ideal world, thousands of compatible EVs are plugged in, it could provide an energy back into the grid in exchange for lower electricity costs, for instance. So if I'm understanding this correctly, most of the EVs available today do not have the two-way charging capability and therefore are only taking from the grid and cannot give back. Um, is there any indication if the car manufacturers are willing to work on the two-way? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some ways to encourage vehicle manufacturers to utilize this technology. One of them could be through financial incentives um, and encouraging people to purchase compatible EVs through tax credits. And with more people interested in purchasing the compatible EVs, the manufacturers are more likely to get on board as well. Yeah, very interesting. I learned something new. <laughs> And another solution um, is kind of just working with our current availability of charging stations. Now that more people are heading back to the office, they can use chargers that may be available at their workplaces. Um, but this would definitely be contingent on the charging mm -hmm. stations being available at their places of work. Um, in addition to workspaces, there should also be fast chargers at major activity centers, such as downtown and retail areas, level two multi-occupant dwellings like apartments, just to ensure that, you know, mm -hmm. chargers are available in low-income communities as well. So essentially, we as planners should be, should really be helping to identify these ideal locations for EV charging based on things like land use and surrounding activities, correct? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. And do you suggest that we only look at publicly available locations where, you know, public agencies can install the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, or do you suggest that we also make recommendations for privately owned land? I'll weigh in on this one. So I think, I think private developers will do this anyway because people want it, but they can also be required or encouraged to provide it. And that's where planners are getting involved, preparing zoning code updates that address EV charging, for example. But to your point, definitely the public side, um, planners can be involved in, but I think we have a, a role really in both in both sides. Yeah, so like we did that, Julia and Malavika, like we worked on that for the Chattanooga region's 2050 regional transportation plan where we identified EV charging opportunity areas that took into account multifamily units and activity centers and all that other stuff. And the idea is that the Metropolitan Planning Organization may consider a policy going forward or and or coordinate with zoning to incentivize um, folks to install EV charging stations in those opportunity areas and or, you know, maybe projects in those areas that provide charging infrastructure are more competitive for funding in the region. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Malavika, you have some more solutions for grid capacity? Yeah. So, um, you know, considering the amount of time it takes to charge a vehicle, which can be anywhere from two to eight hours for a full charge, depending on multiple factors um, and level of access to public charging stations, a lot of people prefer to use their at-home chargers overnight. Um, So as many people continue to follow this trend and EV purchases increase, um, this would put some some level of strain on the electricity grid. The ideal time to charge would be when solar power is available in abundance in the afternoon. But once it's evening time, the reliability of solar power decreases. And so people come home from work and make make the most of, most of their um, electronics at that time. So it's probably not the best time to do it. Um, so having chargers available at a wide variety of locations for both daytime and nighttime charging can kind of sp- help to spread out that demand. Yeah, and, and in addition to that, too, the U.S. Uh, Department of Energy's EV Grid Assist um, is a program that you know, helps provide assistance to the development of vehicle grid integration and uh, disperse research and provide strategies for reducing grids. So this can be used, um, you know, through connecting straight stakeholders, uh, regulators and manufacturers to kind of collaborate and create a more comprehensive system. Yeah. And let's make sure we include that in that resource in the show notes, too, because I think that'd be helpful to a lot of us. Um, so it sounds like the key takeaway here is that as we as planners are conducting or developing transportation plans that include EVs, perhaps we need to consider also adding utility providers to our stakeholder groups, right? Exactly. Yeah. I've noticed lately at conferences and events that I've been to, there have been more representatives from energy companies um, yeah. participating in conversations about transportation. I've seen that at at least three recently that I can think of. So I think this is really happening already. Yeah, I think you're right. So, you know, another potential strategy for relief on the grid is uh, EV managed charging with a time setting to set when the vehicle will start charging and managing charging with people's travel need or electricity supply at a given time, just like we can stop filling gas at any specific amount that we would like. 
Here in Georgia, Georgia Power offers its plug-in electric vehicle rate, which offers a lower price from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. to encourage um, EV charging during the night when electricity demand is generally lower. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to the point, utility companies are going to be playing a larger and larger role in transportation planning and transportation infrastructure. So in addition to, you know, just participating in conversations, um, what role do you think utilities and, and planners will play in the EV charging infrastructure build out? Well, I think utilities are well aware and working on ensuring there is sufficient capacity for charging station deployment and mass EV adoption. Um, but this does require partnership and coordination among energy providers and those implementing EV charging infrastructure. So planners need to stay informed about EV charging and energy demands to ensure that recommendations related to EV charging are feasible. Yeah, it seems the grid capacity issue is one that's really becoming increasingly front of mind. And it appears, you know, from the review that you guys have been doing, that this is a new area that planners should really start taking into consideration if they aren't already. Yeah, and it's going to be really uh, important that planners bring in electric utilities into the planning process to ensure the plans can match up with capacity, electricity availability, and incorporate any policies like charging timers to Mm -hmm. ensure that the plan is implementable. It also seems that beyond just coordinating, there's some really important data that can be useful to planners if it's available. You know, sometimes those um, that kind of data is proprietary. And this supports, going back to our planning emphasis areas, PEA number eight, data and transportation planning to ensure that EV planning is also data driven. All right, Julia, want to kick us off with number three? Okay, consideration number three is EV charging availability and range. So currently, as we mentioned, there are chargers that can be directly installed in people's homes, as well as public charging stations. We talked in the beginning about range anxiety or range confidence. I've sometimes heard it called uh, to refer to people's concerns about being able to be reliably charging their EVs. Newer models have longer and longer ranges all the time and more chargers are being installed all the time. So these concerns should lessen over time, but they're very understandable. Yeah, uh, you know, and the way I understand it, the at-home chargers are are not Mm -hmm. free, right? Um, and sometimes they can get a little expensive. I think you used to get them with the car um, as part of like the incentive to buy EVs, but I think I heard that that's not the case. And then in addition to that, you also have to retrofit your electricity to the garage from a 120 volt outlet, your standard outlet, to a 240 volt outlet. That's the one that you have behind your dryer Um, and maybe some other conversions, I'm really not sure. Yeah. They typically come with a 120 volt level one portable charger that you can plug into any outlet, but level one is slow, about five miles per hour of charging versus about 25 miles for level two. So if you just go with that level one, that's that's pretty slow charging. Um, You're not going to get a full charge overnight on that. So if you do want a level two and you don't have a 240 outlet accessible to where you park, yeah, you would probably need to have electrical work done and that could be costly. Well, thank you for the clarification. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the funding for implementing EV charging. So the bipartisan infrastructure law or the bill and the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 provided substantial funding and incentives for EVs. 
So the bill included the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure, or NEVI, program, which provides a billion dollars per year for EV charging along FHWA's alternative fuel corridors, which is a pretty substantial investment. But a lot more chargers need to be added nationwide from rural communities to suburbs to downtowns and everything in between. So a lot of cities are adding EV requirements to their codes and working towards requiring and supplying some of this needed infrastructure. You know, I think this is a really important topic about the infill of charging stations, especially when it comes to the equity piece of this, which I know we're going to touch touch on soon. Um, but so the NEVI program is just along the alternative fuel corridors, which is, you know, interstates and major roadways like that. But is there any guidance in the bipartisan infrastructure law or bill about how to fund these other areas? Or is it just kind of left up to each state? That's a very timely question. It was announced yesterday that the first round of the funding applications opened for the Charging and Fueling Infrastructure, CFI, Discretionary Grant Program. And that's established by the bill as well. So this program provides $2.5 billion over five years for cities, counties, local governments, and tribes to deploy EV charging infrastructure in urban and rural communities, um, as well as along the alternate fuel corridors. That's awesome. I'm, I'm excited about that. And I, I think there's a big equity component of that as well that they're focusing on and focus on within the communities. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So another topic of discussion is that once charging stations become more and more common and densely located throughout an area, traffic and individual travel patterns may change because charging takes time. It's different than filling your gas tank. So drivers need to make note of where they where and when they're going to be doing their charging, and it will impact how they get around and how they plan their day. Um, so that's just another consideration yeah. to keep in mind. On top of that, people live in apartments or other multifamily dwellings that don't necessarily provide access to level two charging on site, in which case an EV may not be the most practical option. Um, they would need to rely on public charging stations, which could be unpredictable depending on where you are. It's also relatively expensive to install a level two or three charger like we talked about earlier. So this goes into the equity and accessibility component too um, and emphasizes the need for more affordable and accessible charging infrastructure. Yeah. These are all things that planners need to take into account um, in land use and transportation plans. Where and when are people charging? Does the current zoning code and transportation system support these developing patterns and needs? How can we stay ahead of the curve and ensure a smooth transition to an EV future? All things that we are thinking about and need to continue thinking about. Yeah, a lot of questions we should be asking ourselves during the planning process. And that goes back to my point about we're already trying to think about all the considerations for different project types and the impacts that they're going to have. And, you know, sometimes those unintended consequences. This this just adds another layer and complexity to what planners are trying mm-hmm. to think about. So for for all you engineers out there who are listening, you know, us planners, we don't just draw lines on maps. <laughs> Very like true. We, do. We, we actually do a whole lot more. We do a lot of the thinking and we take a lot of the guesswork out of what you do. So I'm just saying, not saying, yeah. just saying. All right. Um, so let's move on to consideration number four. Malavika, I think you're going to talk about this one. Yeah. So our fourth consideration is social equity. An analysis that was done on EV adoption trends to determine at which point used EV prices will see a downward trend and re- or even match um, used gasoline car price points to become affordable for lower income individuals 
is pre predicted to be around 2025 to 2030. Hopefully, this will also lead to savings in the long term for low-income households that previously owned a gasoline car, especially since maintenance and fuel costs of EVs tend to be lower. For instance, EVs don't really need to you know, have those oil changes as often. Yeah, I feel like EVs are pretty pricey right now still. It seems like all the EV car commercials are all luxury brands. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some more affordable options out there, like the Bolt, or maybe, never mind, you know, Fire Recall, yeah. whatever. Just, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But there, I think there are some affordable options out there. It, but it does seem that, like, the ones that I see on TV are all, like, luxury and probably like more than $50,000, which just to me seems wildly unaffordable yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and on the topic of accessibility of charging infrastructure, it's important to mention the consideration for individuals, or I should say the lack of consideration for individuals with disabilities who need to access the charging stations, whether that's through curb cuts for um, ease of reaching the charger or transitioning from the parking lot to the curb and allowing that space for assistive equipment. And, you know, shame on me, but this is not something I've really thought about. But you're absolutely right, Malavika. There needs to be space for anybody to get out and be able to charge their vehicle. And now that I think about it, I've seen some really good examples of this and some really bad examples. Um, but the good one that comes to mind is at my local grocery store. They recently put in several EV charging stations. And I couldn't quite understand why they needed to take 10 regular parking spaces for like ch six chargers. But now that makes sense. They needed that extra space to provide ADA accommodations. I get it. Kudos to you. Yeah. Good job, Kroger. <laughs> right. And, and you know, to incentivize the purchase of EVs, also while touching on that accessibility component, um, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 provides up to $7,500 in tax credits for purchasing an EV, which helps bring the costs closer to those of non-EVs. Importantly, the act also includes a tax credit of up to $4,000 for purchasing a used EV that costs twenty-five dollars or less. Um, so a lot of progress is being made in increasing the affordability and accessibility of EVs. As was discussed in the Season 1 episode about EVs, planners can help further promote equity in EV charging by analyzing where current and planned chargers are located, and identifying opportunities and implementation tools for EV charging access in underserved areas. And I think in addition to this, the outreach component to communities is really important to understand their concerns, constraints, um, directly from them, and work with them to incorporate those solutions. I mean, the fact is, EVs are coming. But understanding how individuals and communities feel about this trend is really important so we can provide the necessary information to the community to help keep people informed. So another thing that I think is, is really important um, with any plan, but also those including EVs, is thinking about planning emphasis area number two, equity and justice 40. So remember that 40% of federal benefits should flow to disadvantaged community. So here's an opportunity to provide some EV infrastructure in those communities and provide more equity 
to the communities. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to our last consideration. And Julia, take it away. So another current topic in EV charging right now is climate impacts of power plant emissions and EV manufacturing, including the environmental impacts of mining materials for lithium ion batteries and how that compares to gasoline power vehicles. And if y'all remember, PEA1 or planning emphasis area one is climate crisis, which is encouraging a transition to a clean energy, resilient future and focuses on greenhouse gas emissions, by converting to clean fuels like EVs. So this is definitely an interesting topic. There is a carbon footprint associated with mining and producing lithium ion batteries, but the electric grid itself is much cleaner than burning gasoline fuel. So according to the US Energy Information Administration in 2021, about 61% of the US electricity generation was from fossil fuels, mostly natural gas and coal. 19% was from nuclear and about 20% was from renewables, like wind, hydroelectric, solar, biomass, and geothermal. Gas-powered vehicles run only on fossil fuel, so even though the electricity source for electric is not always Mm -hmm. low or zero carbon sources, electric is still cleaner overall. And renewable energy production is growing and projected to continue to make up a larger portion of our energy sources in the future. So I think we're headed in the the right direction with EV growth and a cleaner energy future. The topic of climate impacts is is definitely of interest to many planners and many entities that we plan for, like cities, counties, and states have climate and environmental goals that EVs can help address. Of course, EVs are not, of course, EVs are only part of the solution here and changing the way we get around by relying less on personal vehicles is also an important factor. Yeah, and to your point, Julia, it is only one part of the solution. But from a transportation planning perspective, FHWA, I think, really believes that this is a critical path based on their emphasis on clean energy and even mentioning electric vehicles several times as a part of their um, climate change uh, planning emphasis area. Yeah. So, Julia Malavika, this has been fascinating. And y'all did a lot of research and brought some very practical solutions for EV considerations. So we really appreciate both of you joining us today. And it sounds like we could have more episodes on EVs in the future, because I feel like we could just talk about this all day long. Like, there's so many different layers. It's like peeling an onion. Yeah. I mean, Kelly, what would you say is... I don't know if favorite is the right term, but the most interesting consideration for you. Um, I think the grid capacity has always been kind of a intimidating topic for planners because the, you know, the private um, companies really didn't want to share where they were planning to expand their grid capacity, right? Because that's like proprietary information and they don't want their competitors to know that and everything. So planners have always kind of felt like they were working in a vacuum. And if there's, it sounds like there's some resources out there, like the one that we mentioned earlier that we'll put in the show notes that could be a potential resource and just um, the two-way charging potential um, that was fascinating to me. So if, if that's a possibility, um, those were pretty interesting. So I, 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 I was pretty impressed by all that. Yeah. 
And Julia Malavico, was there anything that you found surprising as you were, you know, working on the research for this episode? I think the main thing that I found that was surprising was just all the uncertainty surrounding it. And it really got me thinking, like, you know, when will we start to reach a point where people are confident and will start considering this as a big part of our transportation future? The thing that stood out to me was just how fast all of this is changing. You know, as we were looking through articles and researching for this episode, as I was finding things that were, you know, a year or two old, I was starting to think, nah, you know, I don't know if that's applicable anymore. I mean, this is just really changing fast. So it's it's exciting and it's a lot to keep up with. And uh, there's there's a lot going on. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, so probably by next season, 2020. We'll have to do an update on considerations for EV planning because they might change. (laughs) I know this might have to be a reoccurring episode (laughs) that gets refreshed each season um, as things change. So very exciting. Yeah, And I I think, you know, the thing that's most exciting for me, because I'm admittedly a, a huge data nerd, is I'm excited to see like what kind of data we can use to help us in our decision making. You know, I know we talked yeah. about data availability of like the grid capacity, which may or may not be available. But um, I know we've talked about it in previous episodes, but how you all specifically Julia and uh, Kelly, how you all came up with the opportunity areas for EV charging as part of the Chattanooga mm-hmm. RTP. Um, and how you determine like which layers to use to help you help inform that decision for you. So I I think that's really interesting and hoping that there's more we can incorporate thinking through, you know, all those different factors to help us make decisions on charging locations. Yeah. And you know, to that point, so on the Chattanooga regional transportation plan project website, we have a bunch of story maps on there. Um, and one of them is the EV inventory, charging infrastructure inventory. But the other one is not just the EV opportunity areas, but the methodology for how we develop them and all the different layers. So I think we should include in the show notes um, a link to that specific um, story map. I think it would be helpful to folks. So, And we did that like last year sometime. So, well... Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, As a reminder, if you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. You can find all of our podcasts um, are eligible for AICP CM credits on the American Planning Association website at planning.org. All you got to do is when you search providers, just search for Modern Mobility Partners and you'll see all of our podcast episodes come up. If you want to learn more about how Modern Mobility Partners can help, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe and even better, review our podcast. Uh, That's how you can thank us. You can thank us for all this free content by sharing the podcast, giving us five-star reviews, nothing less. Otherwise, you know, there's no point. And, (laughs) And, you know, sharing it. That's, that's how you can thank us. So you can find us on any of your podcast listening apps, Apple podcasts, Spotify, and, and all of those. So with that, we are over and out. Bye.
Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.